Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems. In this episode of Talking Robots, we talk to Henry Markram, who is the director of the Blue Brain Project and co-director of the Brain and Mind Institute at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Imagine having the blueprint of the human brain, all the way down to the molecular level and the teraflops needed to simulate it. Would such artificial brains be able to learn or dream? Would they be conscious? Finally, how can robots help understand the brain, and how would robots be designed once we have? Hi Henry, welcome to Talking Robots. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. You're at the head of the very ambitious Blue Brain Project. Can you present the goals of the Blue Brain Project to us? Um, there's simulation-based research is actually quite advanced in many fields of science and engineering and in archaeology, and, but it's not very advanced in life sciences in general and in neuroscience in particular. What we'd like to do is to engineer and build a facility that would allow simulation-based research for the brain. That's really the ultimate goal. Um, to do that, you do have to um, do a bottom-up reconstruction of a piece. You have to reverse engineer something, you have to get the blueprints, and then you have to put it back together again, and then you have to try and simulate it, and then hopefully you can use that simulation to be able to gain insights uh, that, are, that you couldn't get from the system because you wouldn't be able to master all the parameters. So simulation would allow you to be able to explore areas where technology today does not allow you to explore experimentally. And why do you want to simulate the whole brain? Well, the, the main, as I said, the main goal is because we want to understand, we want to create a new way to study the brain. The, we can do experiments forever, but every time you do an experiment, you use an animal. Um, hopefully we don't do that forever. We have to eventually take the data and our knowledge and put it into a model so that we can use the models to be able to predict and understand, make hypotheses, come up with ideas for different diseases, different drugs, different treatments, and try and see what are the best ways to to heal diseases. So it should become a, a very powerful way to understand the brain and to heal the different diseases of the brain. And it's inevitable. It's just, it's just a matter of time. We happen to be starting early, but uh, it's an inevitable trajectory. Can you present this brain model you've been developing in the Blue Brain Project? So to start this simulation-based research um, platform, we um, needed to choose a piece of the brain. And actually, I chose this little piece already 15 years ago and uh, started reverse engineering it. Uh, the piece that was chosen is in the neocortex uh, because the neocortex is about 80% of the mammalian brain. It's specific to the mammalian brain. And it contains uh, uh, the most advanced circuitry, neural circuitry. So if we can do it for this little piece... And it's called the neocortical column because it's about one and a half, two millimeters in height and about a half a millimeter wide. If we can do it for the neocortical column, you'll be able to use the same facility to build it for any other area. So that's what we started with. 
And uh, we've finished this first phase, which is a very detailed model of 10,000 cells, about 30 million connections between them. Uh, it's about 400, three to 400 different types of cells. So it's like putting together a very complicated little forest. Does the neurocortical column have a function in the brain? The neocortical column is like a generic processor. It's very much the same from mouse to man. Uh, it's the same from the, from the visual part of your brain to the part that is doing personality processing. So it's a it's a it's a special circuit that is kind of I could think of it as an omnipotent circuit. It can do anything. Um, the, so what you need is you just need lots of the generic processing. You need a very nice circuit diagram that will connect them, and then you can get high brain function. Um, so the neocortical column itself is a very clever design that will allow you to pack many columns together and to exchange information and allow each one to do a slightly different specialization. So ultimately, the human brain has about a million neocortical columns and each one has a slightly different function. But when we think of a function, one shouldn't think of just one function. It is a whole spectrum. It's like a rainbow. Each neurocortical column you can think of as a rainbow. And each one is focused on a slightly different color. But they all have a rainbow. And what species are you currently trying to model? This is in the, in the rat model. Uh, we use a two-week-old rat. Um, most of the data comes from a two-week-old rat. It serves as a generic template. So it's not that we're building a model. We're actually building a facility. The facility uses this uh, data to build a generic template. Once we have this template, it's very easy to be able to adapt and to build any neural circuit from any type of part of the brain or different species. So you said you were simulating the cells, the neurons, connections. What does it take to actually simulate 10,000 neurons in terms of... Uh in terms of hardware, software, uh, what is your experimental setup? Well, in short, you need 10,000 computers because it basically takes a computer to be able to do to simulate one neuron. And uh, depending on how detailed you want it, you need more and more memory on the, on the computer and you need more and more processing speed if you want to do it in real time. So ideally, you need 10,000 computers, but 10,000, a cluster of 10,000 is uh, is possible but uh, unnecessary since you can buy uh, effectively a 10,000 cluster supercomputer where you have 10,000 processors and so we do have a supercomputer actually with 8,192 processors that is used for the simulation but then we export the data to an SGI supercomputer uh, which does the visualization and it's got uh, 16 graphics cards it's got 300 gigabytes of memory, and so we can pump all the data into the, the, the visualization application, and we can actually visualize the simulation taking place uh, in principle on real time. We're not there at real time yet, but we're in principle that is what should be possible. When you say visualization, what do you see? Well, visualization is uh, it's 3D. You can fly through the brain. You, it's like a forest. It's like flying through the Amazon forest. You see lots of branches and uh, different types of neurons. And uh, when it's simulating, you can see different neurons switching on, switching off. Uh, you can see the voltage activity occurring in the different neurons. And in principle, you can image anything. You can image ions. Any parameter of the model 
can be color coded and you can actually image it. So it's like in silico imaging. It's a, it's a dream world of imaging. You can image anything that you that you can that you have a parameter for. And how can you interpret your simulations? I'm thinking of a, a functional behavior such as learning. Do you think we could see such such a thing happening or how it's it's hard for me to imagine how you can interpret this mm. visualization? Well, the brain is building a representation of the world. So it's a representation. It's obviously a complex representation because the uh, everything we see outside, every little picture and color and shape and line has to be represented in the brain. Uh, the brain does this by creating patterns. These can be binary patterns or they can be analog shapes. Uh, we're interested in both the analog shapes and the binary patterns. The analog shapes is not really possible without doing it the way we're doing it because you need to put all the branches together because the shapes have been created all over in the branches as well. So it's really the shapes that are formed that are representing specific uh, shapes outside. So you have shapes outside, they may be geometrical, Euclidean shapes, and you have shapes inside. And we think that they're much more high-dimensional, complex shapes to be able to hold that information. Robots can either be used to understand something about the brain, or they can take inspiration from the brain to develop efficient control and, and behavior such as learning or navigation. Do you see a potential application of your results in the Blue Brain Project to robotics? Um, I think there th certainly will be um, uh, an important application to robotics because uh, the way that we're building the brain, it allows you to build an internal representation. And there are many different ways to do robotics, but uh, building an internal representation is perhaps a very powerful way Um, which allows the robot to perform all its internal calculations of where it needs to go in terms of an internal model of the world and then navigate with an internal model and learn to calibrate that with an external model. So by putting the blue brain on top of a normal robot, it could actually uh, allow the robot remotely in any part of the world or perhaps on another planet to, to um, navigate according to the activity inside the robot. You also, uh, inside the blue brain, but you can also look inside the blue brain and see what the robot sees. So the advantage of the blue brain is that you don't have to see through the eyes of the robot. You can see through the brain of the robot. That's one. But the other advantage is that you can actually use robots to help us understand the brain. And uh, that has actually tremendous potential because... For example, let's imagine a virtual environment and you have a little virtual rat running around and uh, but its brain is on, on blue brain. And when the rat decides to make it, has to make a decision whether to go left or right because on the right side there's some cheese, uh, that decision process is a learned process and it, is, uh, it becomes a, a cognitive process. At the moment that they make that decision, we can actually look inside Blue Brain and see what has what was under what was uh, behind that decision to decide uh, whether to go left or right, and when it made a mistake, what kind of uh, events occur in the brain when it makes a mistake. So, by and of course, uh, for all of this to work, it means that Blue Brain would have to function to allow that robot to navigate effectively and to learn. And therefore, you'd also be able to track the memories 
once they learn, as the, robot, the, the rat learns how to find the cheese, it's really the blue brain that's learning, and you'll be able to track the memories and see how they're distributed and, and, and represented in the brain. So do you think we know enough about the brain to actually have a, a simulation of the brain, which can then, when put into a rat robot, actually behave as a rat brain? Well, I mean, I think that you have a lot of skeptics that believe we don't have enough knowledge, but actually nobody knows because we publish about, uh, not we, but the whole world publishes about 50,000 neuroscience papers a year. So the average neuroscientist can read maybe 100 or 200 of those papers, which means that there's no neuroscience that I, neuroscientist that even has the authority to say how much we know about the brain because we don't even know what we know. So you do need to, there's an enormous amount of data Uh, you do need to have it very standardized, very quantitative, and that does take some, some effort and transformation. But it's not a question of having all the data. Uh, what we've already discovered is that if you have the key data, it starts to fill, the, the gaps become much clearer, and it's easy to know what new data you need, and you, it's easier to know how to standardize the data and to fill the gaps. So I think that we certainly have more than enough data that we can even handle and more than enough data to begin. It will, may take some time to complete, but we definitely have more than enough data to begin. If the brain is capable of giving rise to consciousness, feelings and emotions, do you think we will be able to simulate and understand such things in the Blue Brain Project? I think that, well, we know that the brain, the real brain, is giving rise to consciousness and feelings. Uh, the question is where the blue brain will give rise to consciousness and feelings. Well, you know, the, my standard answer is that if it does, it'll be fantastic because we'll be able to study the exact emergence and mechanism of how consciousness arises. If it doesn't, we will also have a very positive result in that we will know it takes a hell of a lot more than simulating every neuron and every molecule and every pathway that you'd have to do something more. And that alone would be a very important uh, finding about consciousness, that it, it's not just enough just to capture all those little interactions. You'd have to capture something much deeper. Maybe you have to go to the atomic level or subatomic level. I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating that either way, you will actually learn something about consciousness. So in the end, the brain is a computer. Well, no, it is it, a computer. A computer is a very general word, but the brain is much more powerful than a computer because computers today are digital, and the brain is a digital computer, it is an analog computer, it's a molecular computer, and maybe it's even a quantum computer. We don't actually know all the different dimensionalities of the kind of computing that it does, but it's certainly that most of what the brain's Uh, the computing power of the brain comes from analog computing, which is not something that you get um, that is not that you get from standard computers, digital computers. How can you go down from a supercomputer to something which can be embedded in a real robot? Well, I think that um, if we look at the trajectory and the speed of, of computers, this year, 2008, um, there should be a petaflop computer, tend to the 10 to the 15 calculations per second. In another 10 years, there will be at least 10 to the 18, so it's an exaflop. Uh, another 10 years after that, it's going to be a zetaflop. Um, so uh, within the next uh, couple of decades, your average desktop is probably going to be able to run a, a, a thing. So it's not that it's right now that you can put 
this onto um, onto a robot, but it's going to take uh, at least 10 years for us to be able to capture very accurate models. And within the next 10, at least 20 years, it's going to be able to begin to use a single computer that may be quite big to drive a robot. And in the near future, it's inevitable. Computers will be small enough to be able to put onto robots. A lot of roboticists are trying to implement neural networks or, or more abstracted forms of memory in their robots. Why not simplify this model of the Blue Brain project to something which is more applicable today? Well, I think that, you know, simplifying or using an abstract model is very justifiable and it is a better strategy if you want to get your robot to be very good at one thing or two or three things. But if you wanted to simultaneously solve many, many things, you will discover that you need to make your models more complex. And I just think that starting from a simple model and making it more complex is going to be much more difficult and challenging than doing a bottom-up reconstruction. BlueBrain is only different from other neural network models and other brain models and other robotic initiatives in that it is really a bottom-up reconstruction. If we build it right, it will speak. If we, but we don't build it in order to speak. Let's keep talking about the future. If you were to make a robot, what would it do? Well, I, my particular interest is not just to build a clever robot. I think there are a lot of very clever people that know how to do that better than what we're doing. And I think that is pretty much an engineering challenge. Our goal is really to try to understand the brain. And so I would build a robot that would help us to, that would have the behaviors. The robot should speak, it should have feelings, it should do everything that a human being does if we want to understand the brain. Um, so ideally the robot should be able to do those very human things that uh, and, and thoughts and abstract thinking and language and maybe make music and compose music and adjust its intelligence level and so that we can understand what it takes. What kind of molecules switch do you need to make to change the intelligence level of the robot? And what kind of circuits do you need to, to form for the robot to be, get more intelligent? So we do that to, for the purpose of understanding the brain because that would allow us to get a fundamental uh, uh, test bed where we can test our hypotheses. And so that's the kind of robot that I would like to see Uh, built and uh, like to see being used. It's not so much for the purpose of building a robot to do something clever. So now you've simulated the rat neocortical column. Where do you think the Blue Brain project will be in five years? Well, we have um, uh, we finished phase one, which is to build the cellular level model of the neocortical column. Uh, we've done a lot of validation. We can repeat many of the experiments that have been done in labs around the world. Uh, we're doing a lot more, we're adding more detail, but fundamentally we're now going in two directions. One is uh, to increase the resolution, so we're going to go down to the molecular level models, and the second is to go to whole brain models. We'll first do the RAT, and we do the RAT because we get cellular level, very good cellular level data. Then we'll do the mouse because we get a lot of very good molecular data. And then we'll do the cat because there's uh, very good data on how the system works when you have larger, like many columns together, build this visual area and build larger areas. 
And then we'll do the primate because that's where you can start to get emergence of complex behaviors. And then we will do the human brain. And our goal is, if, uh, if we have enough funding, our goal is to, to build the model of the human brain within 10 years. What is needed to be able to model the human brain? Well, the main thing, you need two things to do simulation-based research. You need a critical mass of data and you need a critical mass of computing power. So we need at least an exaflop supercomputer with about 200, maybe 500 petabytes of data, which is about 100 times the size of the Internet. Uh, so it's a lot of memory um, and you need a very powerful uh, in terms of processing speed. So that's on the computing side. On the data side, What we need is very uh, detailed description, quantitative, very standardized description of proteins, molecules, enzymes, reactions, cells, circuits, systems, very quantitative. Um, and uh, that quantitative data is is really the food for the model. The software side is is not is, is something that uh, is basically a framework, um, but you need to have the critical amount of data. There are other little challenges, like you have to be able to manage. How do you manage 200 petabytes of data? It's a lot of data. So you have to have informatics tools, automated data management tools, Um, but the main challenges are really high-quality standardized data and and uh, computing power. In all areas of robotics now, where do you see the biggest potential? I think that the main, ad you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in robots, so I don't want to offend anybody, but it seems like that the main advances in robotics are not so much algorithmic or clever designs. It's because processes that are being used to drive robots are getting faster and they have more memory and they can put more, in, more, more things on top of them. I think uh, fundamentally robots will always have, uh, as they are being built today, will always have a fundamental limitation because they're not able to to capture many of the neural processes that are that the brain uses and uh, the thing to avoid is a fear of complexity the brain is complex and that's how it becomes very flexible and and is capable of managing in many different uh, environments the brain does multi-dimensional processing it uh, has a dynamic assignment for functions and for cells and who should do what when And um, so I think that basic engineering will probably find that in order to get the robot to do what a human does, you'd have to eventually build a human brain. <laughs> Thanks, Henry, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Thank you. This concludes this episode with Henry Markram on the Blue Brain Project. Don't miss our next podcast in two weeks, which will conclude this Talking Robots series. Because you're the ones making the future, we would love to hear your opinion on the future of robotics. Your concerns, hopes, and visions can be sent to TalkingRobots at gmail.com. That's TalkingRobots in lowercase and in one word, by Monday the 19th of May. Selected comments will be aired in our last show. Thanks for listening. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch. <laughs>